Listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding dying. Let us pray. Oh Lord, what a privilege it is for us to consider your word. Lord, it is our life. It is the foundation of all that we want to think and do and say. We want, Lord, your word to permeate our lives so that your character will permeate our lives. We want your promises to uphold us so that we can taste of your goodness, so that we can taste and see that the Lord is good. We want to live out uh, your word so that, Lord, we become what flows from our innermost being, rivers of living water, as we live out and proclaim the very gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, draw us after yourself now. Fix our minds upon your word. Lord, feed us as only you by your spirit can do. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know how many of you were there the first time in the movie theater, but it had to be an amazing moment in The Wizard of Oz when you're black and white, and then after the tornado, when the door opens and full technicolor, <laughs> you're in Oz suddenly. Even, even on TV, the first time I saw it as a kid, my mouth was just hanging open. A whole new world. It's like the old world, Kansas, was gone. <laughs> the whole world was now in color, and it was a whole different situation for her. I I think also about the Chronicles of Narnia, of how she goes through the wardrobe, Lucy. She's going through the furs, and suddenly she's among trees, and then suddenly her feet are crunching snow. She's in a whole new world. And that's what Paul says here, verse 17. A new creation. He doesn't just say here that we are new creatures, No, it's emphatic. New creation. And Richard Pratt points out that this is really... He's he's saying that we have undergone a transformation that will ultimately end in the new heavens and the new earth. Glorious. We are in the new creation already. Everything is new. The old is passed away. Morally, what does that mean? A little earlier in verse 15, this is what this transformation means. This is what it means to be a part of this creation that will end in the new heavens and the new earth. We no longer live for ourselves, but we live for Christ. We no longer live for ourselves, but we live for Christ. That's the glorious heart of this transformation. The transformation, the new heavens and the new earth are intensely relational. It has to do with our relationship to God. And everything flows from that. 
And that's why in verse 18, we're going to deal with verses 18 through 21 more explicitly than we did last week. We talked about a larger context last week. But in verses 18 through 21, he says there, there, all this is from God. This new creation, this all things have passed away. Even verse 16, how we view all people differently now because we're Christians. We don't view them as we once did. We view all people differently, as Paul says earlier in chapter 4, verse 5. We don't proclaim ourselves. We proclaim ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. There's a transformation in your view of everybody else. That You view the whole world that you're their servants for Christ's sake. That's the new creation. That's where the new heavens and the new earth will it'll finally end in the new heavens and the new earth. But it is born in this new relationship that we have with God that changes us inside out. And so right on the heels of saying in verse 18, all this new creation is from God. It's basically as though he says, and here is how it all began. He reconciled us through Christ. You see, the new heavens and the new earth, the new creation is born in this. We are reconciled to God. The whole of our new life is relational. It's born in this relationship with God. And without a new relationship to God, no transformation takes place. So we want to look at this in several categories. First of all, the need for reconciliation, the need for it. And then we're going to see the agent of reconciliation, who is God himself. Then we're going to see the means of reconciliation. He did it through Christ. And then finally, we'll see the results of this reconciliation in our life, in in our ministry. But first, the need for reconciliation. Really, back up in verse 15, kind of implicitly, we see the need for reconciliation. He died, why? So that those who live might no longer live for themselves. I may shed this jacket as we get going. I need, I saw one time, I was at a meeting where the preacher, it was a pretty charismatic meeting, and he had a vest on and suddenly as he was preaching, he says, I'm getting hot. I'm getting hot. And he ripped that vest off and threw it to his, you know, his lackey over there. And he caught the, you know, it's just so dramatic. So, John, would you get up here? Because <laughs> I just might rip this thing off. Okay. <laughs> oh, it's amazing how quickly ministers become roosters. <clears throat> So, he says we no longer live for ourselves. That's the summary of our lives. Apart from Christ, we live for ourselves, we think about ourselves, we promote ourselves, we honor ourselves. We protect ourselves at the expense of others. We pity ourselves to the the neglect of others. We're dependent on ourselves. We isolate ourselves. We're fixed upon ourselves. And here's the paradox. We hate ourselves and we want what others have and what they are because we love ourselves. (laughs) 
Jesus said, love others as you love yourself. It doesn't mean, hey, you're not learn to love yourself. Then you can learn to love other people. No, he means you've had a lifetime of practice at loving yourselves. You can do it in any and all circumstances. Come rain or snow or flood, you're good at it. And even no matter how much you and I may act for others and sacrifice for others, we can always infect it with a good shot of self. Really, in this life, we are never, ever, we never act perfectly without putting self in there. And certainly apart from Christ, it's heinous. And so, I'm the one you better not pull out in front of, right? I'm the one you better not ignore. I'm the one you better recognize. I'm the one you'd better not offend. And you'd better have just the right tone of voice if you're talking to me. I'm the one you better serve. I'm not here to make you happy. You're here to make me happy. And you'd best get to it. That's humankind. That's us. That's the Bible's assessment. We live for ourselves. Philip Hughes puts it this way, that sin is radical mutiny. Radical mutiny. Not just setting myself in the place of another creature, like men would mutiny a ship, and so we're going to take over this ship. No, it's putting myself instead of God at the center of reality. Draw your little circle, and there's God, and so here we are. You move over here. Let me put me right there. Yes, I like that. (laughs) There we are. We like it. That feels good to us. That feels right to us. Me at the center of reality. And that's why so often we don't have a real problem with God when others suffer. We don't. Surprisingly, we have a problem with God when I suffer. That's when I have a problem. Many times it's then that our whole understanding of God and the way He works is shattered. Not when my friends suffered, but when I suffer. We say, why me? Here's the real why question. Why do I say, why me? Why? Because now God has messed with the sacred me at the center of my universe. And really, I'm the one that's sacred. Nobody else and not even God. I'm the one that's sacred. That's what Paul says. That's what he says. That's why we have to be reconciled. We're not thinking by nature, Lord, do whatever you have to do with me. Whatever you choose, just use me for your glory. By nature, we find it impossible, unthinkable really, to have less health, less position, or have less opportunity and recognition and attention and success and wealth than others, and then to rejoice that God will be glorified in it. Because we don't think God is sacred, we think we are sacred. By nature, we're not out for Him, we're out for ourselves We are his enemies. We are his enemies by nature. That's what Paul says in Philippians 3. For many of whom I've often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Listen to his description. Their end is destruction 
Their God is their belly. God is their passion, their desire. That's what controls them. Not God's word, not his authority, not his prerogatives. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. No, that doesn't mean you can't be concerned about the things around you, but it means God is excluded. I'm totally focused on this life. And so, as Margaret Thrall says about this passage, the purpose of Christ's death was to bring an end to man's self-centered existence. This is the essence of the fallen state and is the destruction through Christ's death as the representative of fallen mankind makes possible a new kind of existence with the risen Christ at the center. And so that's the need for reconciliation. We are enemies. We are fixed upon ourselves. And though we rebel against Him, and this rebellion and alienation is originating with us, It's not the sole factor in that alienation. Phillips Hughes says this, God is not the helpless victim of the mutiny of man. Man's mutiny is met and matched by the wrath of God against sin. His supremacy as sovereign governor of the universe is unimpaired. So our rebellion, our, our making ourselves his enemies is met by his wrath. And you see, really, his wrath is part of his, his goodness, really. It, it's, it's, in a way, it's a, the flip side of his purity and love. To, be, to disregard, as Thrall also says this, to, the disregard of human sinfulness would be an expression not of love, but of transcendent indifference. Indifference? Imagine a house in which three or four kids are just wreaking havoc. Just this week, right? No. (laughs) They're breaking stuff. They're pulling out drawers. They're making multiple food messes. They're fighting and actually injuring each other. And the parent, the, the, the grown person, is not doing a thing. And you imagine, you think, is it like a senile grandparent sitting in a wheelchair who can't hear or see or remember anything? Is that, is that what's going on? Is it a, an alcoholic father? Is it a, 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 a mom on drugs sitting in a stupor in the corner of a bedroom? Or is it some malicious half-grown grown-up who enjoy half-crazy grown-up, I mean, who enjoys the corruption of it all? Who could that be? And for God to be uninvolved, for God to have no wrath. His wrath shows He cares deeply how human beings treat Him and how they treat one another. And ultimately, He will not put up with it and no one will get away with it. That's the need for reconciliation. Alienated ourselves against God and that alienation, that rebellion is met by his wrath. This is the amazing thing. That God who has such purity, who is so good and faithful and kind that our lack of love, the lack of love in each one of us is an immeasurable offense to him. 
You see, that's the measure of his, his wrath is a measure of just how good and faithful and kind he is. And so our lack of love is a, an immeasurable offense to him. Because we're so unlike him. His love is unlimited. You see, this need for reconciliation makes it all the, all the more amazing that the agent for reconciliation is this God. We've offended him so highly, but he's the one who's acting on our behalf. Now, the, the word reconciliation, it means simply to end this relationship of enmity or hostility, antagonism, alienation, estrangement, all of these words, and replace it with one of peace and goodwill. He's restoring us to full favor. Nothing between us. In fact, it is now all favor and blessing. Only favor and blessing. Nothing but favor and blessing. So from this state of alienation under his wrath, headed for destruction, to a condition of full, total, passionate favor from God. That's reconciliation. And it says in verse 18, all of this, this new creation is from God. And notice, he who through Christ reconciled it. God reconciled us. Verse 19, in Christ, God was reconciling the world. God was not tr- counting their trespasses against him. God was entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. You see, he's acting and then he's sending. He's making sure the message goes forth. To the, to the point that in verse 20, God is making his appeal through us. It is though God is speaking. Be reconciled to God. And then verse 21, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. It is God acting completely from beginning to end. The initiative is God. All the action is God. And it's an accomplished work that's announced to the world. The, the message is not, you need to go through steps A, B, C, D. You've got to change your life. And if you get good enough, perhaps you, God will let you back into his favor. No, God has, in, the, the announcement is, God was reconciling the world to himself. So while our backs are turned on him, This act of God is accomplished while humanity was still hostile toward Him. It says in Romans 5, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. It's not a, we're not meeting each other halfway. That's usually how, okay, y'all lay down your arms, y'all lay down your arms, let's meet halfway. No, while we're warring, while we're warring, God is reconciling. How could, he, how could He look at our hostility against Him? How could He look at our mocking and our ridicule, our neglect of Him in the face of that to send His Son? God was reconciling us. Even while our fists are in His face, even when we so opposed Him, even when we were so unlike Him and so offensive to Him at the time He died for us.
And so it says that he was reconciling the world. This means all people of every kind in every place, people everywhere, not just Israel, not just the sinners. He was reconciling the world, the world of humanity. Not that every single person, of course, would get that reconciliation. It's a way to say he was reconciling sinners to himself. And so, brothers and sisters, in the beating of Christ in the bloody crown of thorns, in the horrible laceration of his back, in the spitting and mocking, in the penetration of nails into his hands and feet, in the raw jolting pain along the nerves of his arms and legs, in the helpless throbbing of his shoulder joints, in his dehydration through loss of blood, in his slow suffocation, in his final death, in the piercing of his side by the sword, in his burial and his glorious resurrection on the third day, see in all of it God reconciling men and women, boys and girls, sinners of every kind to himself. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. How could he have such a passion to have us? How could he have such a passion to do what? To show favor to his enemies. There's a new creation because there's a new relationship which God himself has brought about. So there's the need for reconciliation. We were enemies. Here's the great agent of reconciliation. God himself having favor toward us when we deserved only His wrath. But you, the question comes up, how could He in the end accept the ungodly? In the words of Romans 4, Paul uses that phrase that we dealt with several weeks ago. He justifies the ungodly. That ain't right. No. You don't do that. You don't justify the ungodly. You condemn the ungodly and you justify the righteous. What God even said in the Old Testament, don't condemn the righteous, don't justify those who are evil. And that very word that's used in the Old Testament, he says here, now he's justifying the evil. Which just shows, if we, as we've demonstrated, you just come to him as, those, as the hymn says, yes, sung way too many times at the end of certain services, but you come just as I am. Justify me. And I bring nothing to the table but my sin. And you declare me righteous. There's another phrase we'll deal with next week in Romans 3. He's just and justifier. You might say, well, he justifies the ungodly, but how could that be just? How could it be fair? In Romans 3, Paul says, he's just and the justifier. He's completely just. He doesn't wink at sin. He doesn't play it down. So, well, look, I really don't care if you've done all these wrong things. We'll just play like you haven't done anymore. Let me just show you a favor. No, the means, the means. There's the need. Here's the great agent. He, he works through Christ, obviously. Verse 18, through Christ reconciled us to himself. 
You see what this says to any other approach, any other religious foundation, any other religious view. Here is the proclamation. There is a God offended by our sin. He has reconciled us through one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's no hope outside of that. He repeats it then in verse 19. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself. And then He spells it out by saying what? He was, how did He reconcile the world? Here's the essence of it. Not counting their trespasses against them. There was no hope, was there? There's no hope of reconciliation unless that phrase is there. I will not count your transgressions against you. Not one thought, not one word, not one deed that you've ever done that is sinful, none of it will be remembered. None of it will be counted against you. So Paul says in Romans 8, 1, in Christ there is no condemnation. Not even a little aura, not even a little few drops, nothing. It means that there is only favor, only God's kindness coming to us so that He is all for us. All circumstances work for our good. All good comes to us. Goodness and mercy follow us all the days of our life. Why is that true? Because He doesn't count any trespasses against us. So in Psalm 32, quoted by Paul in Romans 4, which we dealt with, Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him. This is the chief part of his reconciliation, so working that our sins would not be counted against us. And still we might say, well, how can you do that? How can you not count our sins against us? Because we deserve your punishment, your wrath, because of our rebellion. And then in verse 21, it's fully opened up. Here's how he did it. For our sake, he, God, made him to be sin who knew no sin. Gregory of Nazianzus sees him as making man's disobedience his own by solidarity with humanity. He owned, not owned as though he was the one, but he associated himself with us to such a degree that the result of our disobedience fell upon him. He was treated as sin personified, treated as though he were a sinner. Barrett says he came to stand in that relation with God, which normally is the result of sin, estranged from God and the object of his wrath for our sake. What love to bear, to so identify, to say, I will be blamed for that sin. I will be punished for that sin. The wrath of God will fall on me and not you. And it's not as though he's, you know, doing this to make a reluctant father willing. The father made him to be sin, you see. This is a work of the father and the son to make Him stand in our place. The One who Himself was perfect, who knew no sin whatsoever, 
And so he exchanged by his identity with us, he exchanged the situation that's proper to his own sinlessness to the condition that was consequent or the result of human sin. He should have had a position and a full unmarked blessing of God because of his perfect righteousness, but he associated himself with his people and bore their wrath. And then the result statement, so that, here's the result of this for us, so that in him, in our association with him, we might become the righteousness of God. We are in a state designated God's righteousness in union with Christ. And so the blessing that flows to Christ flows to us. You want to know, am I accepted? Just ask the question if you trust in Christ. Is Christ accepted? I'm telling you that's comforted me hundreds and hundreds of times before God. When I'm undone by my sin and my continual failures in different areas and I hide myself in Christ and say, Oh Lord, you must, you do accept your own Son. He has borne my sin and I am united with Him. And so God's righteousness is pronounced over me because I'm associated with Him. And so you've heard me say it many times, but He embraces Christ and He embraces you with the same embrace. It's not even a second embrace, okay? Holding Christ and then holding you. Uh Uh-uh. He embraces you as He embraces His own Son. Could that be any more passionate? Could it be any more full of favor and love? And so all creation, we read, is for you now. All creation will work to your good. And that's why, you see, when he declares us as righteousness, it's coupled with this idea of reconciliation. So this new relationship with God is not just a cold legal statement, suddenly that you are not guilty. No, it's the gateway to God's full passion and favor falling upon you and never leaving you forever and ever because of your union with Jesus Christ, always associated with Him. What are the results? Finally, well, we started with one result, didn't we? Back up to verses 14 and 15. The net of this revelation of reconciling God is what he says in verse 14, the love of God. The love of Christ controls us. To trust in Christ is to be convinced of His love for you. To trust in Christ is to be convinced of His welcoming you. This means that you welcome that love. You accept that love. You're moved by that love, energized by that love, comforted by that love. You gain hope through that love. It's not just this transaction, whoever this Jesus is, He comes into my heart and I guess I'm going to heaven now. The love of Christ breaks into your life. And it begins to control you. And that's why in verse 15 he says, Now we no longer live for ourselves. 
We live for Him because of His love, because of this reconciling love of God that has burst forth into our lives through Jesus Christ. We have finally been released of ourselves. We're running, in a sense, we're just running out of the prison. We're like a dog that's, and I love those hound dogs, you know, that are let out of their pen and they just, they're gone, you know, just running with their tongues hanging out, you know. Ideally, brothers and sisters, that's us set free from living for ourselves and finally living for the God that made us because we're convinced of His love through Christ. His love has pierced our hearts. It's interesting, this word, His love controls us. It has kind of a negative thing. It restrains us, almost as though it restrains us from ever fully living for ourselves again. We just can't do it anymore by His grace. Now, of course, we know how we all struggle against that. But isn't that encouraging that that is the mighty power working in your heart to set you free from yourself? This is what happens. And I repeat what James Denny, I read it last week. This love prevails or this action prevails on man to believe in the seriousness of his love and to lay aside distrust. I love that phrase. To believe in the seriousness of his love. So that's the first thing, this new creation, living for him. But the final thing I want to say, the result of this reconciliation is that we now are engaged in the ministry of reconciliation. Paul says it again and again. And of course, first and foremost, he's talking about himself as an apostle. But each time he can't talk about being reconciled without saying, and then there's the ministry of reconciliation. It comes with the territory. If you are experiencing the love of Christ, the reconciliation of God, then you become a part of the ministry of reconciliation. Through Christ reconciled us, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He was reconciling the world, not counting trespasses, entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. And so the church as a whole... The church as a whole in all of its varied ministries now has that ministry of reconciliation to the world. We are the ones through whom God is making His appeal to say, be reconciled to God. So where Paul speaks, God speaks, Barrett says. And so as we speak His word, it is God pulsating in His heart and His passion. John Calvin says this, this act of God reconciling the world to himself. Now we have the pledges of his goodwill toward us. It's the main purpose of the gospel that although we're by nature children of wrath, the quarrel between God and us can be resolved and we can be received by him into his grace. We're given authority to declare this good news and to increase our assurance of God's fatherly love towards us. To announce to the world, brothers and sisters, to your neighbor, to your family, to your friends, to your business associate, at the right time, in wisdom, of course, in relationship, in mercy and, and, and hospitality, etc. This is your great calling to announce God's goodwill to man. You're like the angels. You see it? 
like the angels announcing to people, God was reconciling the world to himself. And he says to you, be reconciled. Philip Hughes says this, There is no service to mankind more crucial and urgent than the exercise of this ministry. This ministry with its message of reconciliation is in the ultimate issue the one thing needful for our world in all circumstances and in every generation. And so can we say with Paul, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, we honor you, we praise you, that you have acted on our behalf when our backs were turned against you. You sought us out. It is you and not us, Lord. You have done it. We would have done nothing. We thank you. We pray that you would open up our hearts, Lord, to your love, to your passion in giving Christ And Lord, we pray that this word will be a constant comfort to us that we will enjoy to the fullest our reconciliation. As Paul says, we've been justified, therefore we have peace with God. Oh Lord, may we explore and discover new aspects of your favor and goodness toward us. And may it constantly transform our lives so that we are more and more set free from ourselves to pour out our lives in servanthood to others and that we might in some way match the very joy of God who loves so passionately. Oh Lord, we want that joy. We want that joy of loving even as you love. Set us free, Lord. And grant that we, as a church, as a denomination, as Christians worldwide, oh Lord, renew us and revive us, that we will go forth with the ministry of reconciliation, count ourselves as servants of others for Christ's sake. Bless us, oh Lord, bless us. For your name's sake we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light, oh, come with blissful rain, break radiant through the shades of night, and chase my fears away, won't you chase my fears away, then shall my soul with rapture trace the wonders of the